Hi, my name is Autumn Dixon, and this week is July 18th through the 24th, and we are going to be in Ezra and Nehemiah. So I wanted to focus on Nehemiah's story for this particular video. Nehemiah was a Jew. He was also the cupbearer to the Persian king, to the Gentile king. And what it means to be the cupbearer is you get to drink out of the cup before the king does because the king is surrounded by enemies, people trying to assassinate him. And the best way to do that in that time was to poison them. So Nehemiah was the cupbearer. He was the one who was in charge of making sure that the king didn't get poisoned. This was a position of great trust. He was in the inner circle with the king. I mean, if you're trusting someone with your life, you probably trust them really, really well. So Nehemiah was very trusted by the king. Now, Nehemiah is living in the capital, one of the capitals, with the king, watching out for him. When his brother comes, his brother had gone down to Jerusalem with Ezra, and his brother comes and tells Nehemiah what's going on in Jerusalem. He says, the wall is crumbling and it's not built, which was actually very significant in that day because Jerusalem was surrounded by enemies. And without a wall, it was extremely vulnerable. And so the temple wasn't really moving along. The gates were on fire <laughs> and the Jews were in a very pitiful condition, right? Nehemiah hears this and he is overcome with emotion. He is very worried about his people and upset. Now, that part of the story that I just told is actually in Nehemiah chapter one, which is not technically part of this week's readings. However, I really like it. So I'm going to be talking about it a little bit <laughs> because there's some great things that happen within that first chapter. So Nehemiah is just overcome with emotion about the Jews suffering in Jerusalem and about their plight. And he prays and he talks to Heavenly Father and he says, essentially, I know that we as a people sinned. We as Jews sinned against you. And because of that, we were scattered. But please remember your promise that if we are willing to repent, you're going to help us gather again. He says, please remember that promise. Also, I want to go and talk to the king. So if you could help me in that, that would be awesome. So Nehemiah goes to the king and the king tells him he can leave and the king sends him with tons of resources and letters, political letters that will help him on this extremely long journey to Jerusalem. Now, I want you to ponder just for a second what that actually means for the king to do. The king is not a Jew. <laughs> He's never been a Jew. He has this inner circle of men that he really trusts, right? And obviously there's enough problems that he has this cupbearer, but he really, he trusts Nehemiah. And when Nehemiah approaches him and says, hey, I actually want to go back to Jerusalem, the king's like, yeah, you can leave, right? Instead of being like, hey, you kind of have some responsibilities here, <laughs> right? He's like, Nehemiah, yeah, you can go. But not only does he do that, the king is like, oh, also here are some political letters that can help you get there. And you know, that kind of makes sense. Like if he really liked Nehemiah and he's like, if this is really what you want to do, I'm going to help you do it. But then he takes it a step farther and he sends Nehemiah with tons of resources to go and build the wall and to help the Jews in their problems. There wasn't really a political advantage to this. <laughs> At least 
Not that we can know of, right? The Jews were not in a position to be some powerful ally to this Persian king, right? His heart was softened in some way, and he helped Nehemiah travel back and build up this wall for Jerusalem. Well, there's a happy ending. Nehemiah goes back, travels 900 miles to get to Jerusalem. He, by inspired strategy, he is able to help the Jews defend themselves against their enemies, the Samaritans. They're able to build the wall, and Jerusalem is once again protected, able to move forward on the temple. So there's a happy ending. Now, there's kind of two sections, I guess, in this video of things that I want to pull out in regards to Nehemiah's story. The first one, Nehemiah didn't go to Jerusalem originally, right? So after he talks to the king, the king helps him get there. But originally, Ezra had already left. He was a scribe and he had felt inspired to go back to Jerusalem and to gather there and got permission and traveled with thousands of Jews back to Jerusalem. Nehemiah didn't go. His brother went, but he did not choose to go with them originally. And there are lots of reasons why some of the Jews did not choose to leave Babylon and to go back to Jerusalem, which I know nowadays there's just kind of this understanding that we all just stay where we're at in the world and we build up Zion there, right? But in those times, it was very important to the Lord that his people were gathered. Nehemiah did not gather. And there were lots of reasons why the Jews didn't gather. When you read, I guess, about the history behind it, it talks about how some of the Jews did not really even identify as Jews anymore. They'd been gone for so long. Some of them did not feel like leaving their comfortable homes to travel 900 miles to be surrounded by enemies, to rebuild a city and rebuild a wall and rebuild a temple that they don't even necessarily identify with anymore, right? It talks about how some of the Jews, even though they didn't travel back, they still donated lots of their stuff to go and help build up the temple. Anyway, lots of reasons. We don't know why Nehemiah stayed. It doesn't really say why he didn't originally travel with his brother. However, we do know this about him. So like I said, Nehemiah chapter one, not technically in this week, week's readings, but I really like it. So I'm going to read a verse out of it. This is Nehemiah chapter one, verse four. So his brother has come to him and he says, the wall is broken down. The gates are burned with fire. It's really bad down there in Jerusalem. And this is how Nehemiah responds. It says, and it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So he was really beat up about this, right? The gathering of the Jews back to their homeland was very important to him. And even if even if his original reasoning for not going down to Jerusalem had been negative, right? Like let's say that he felt pretty comfortable in Babylon and he didn't really feel like traveling 900 miles or maybe he really liked his powerful position right next to the king. Even if his reasons for not gathering to Jerusalem have been dishonorable in the beginning, from this verse that we're reading, by this point in time, his heart before the Lord was right. He, the gathering meant something to him. It was important to him, just like it was important to the, to the Lord. Now, 
I can think of two potential reasons. Well, I guess two sides of the coin as to why Nehemiah didn't go. Either he had dishonorable reasons. He didn't want to leave his comfortable life in Babylon. He didn't want to leave his powerful position, whatever it might've been, or he had felt prompted that he needed to stay a little bit longer or the Lord had led him to stay a little bit longer, right? There's only kind of two sides to that. Either it was because he wasn't quite right before the Lord at the time or because the Lord had led him to do so. Once again, conjecture, right? This is all guessing at Nehemiah's reasoning for staying. However, I think it's good to do that, right? Especially in the Old Testament, because we only have so much information in the Old Testament. (laughs) Old Testament's hard. But when we look at them as people, when we examine why they may have chosen different things, we, I feel like we can relate to them better and we can learn so much more from their stories. So I want to talk about both of these reasons. Like if his reasons had been originally dishonorable and whether, or whether he had been guided by the Lord to stay in Babylon rather than gathering. I want to talk about both of these and learn principles from it. So let's say that Nehemiah's reasons were bad and he was sinning. He didn't want to gather to gather to Israel. He didn't want to gather with his people and go back and worship at the temple. He wanted to stay with the king. We know that he changed. So if, this is all if, if that had been his reasoning in the beginning, if it had been less than honorable, by this point in the story, he had changed and he wanted the gathering to happen and he wanted his people to be safe and he wanted the temple to be built again. What we can learn from that, if that was the case, what we can learn from that is that even though his reasons were dishonorable in the beginning, the Lord still used him immediately right where he was in Babylon, right? The Lord didn't say, you're too late. You're too late. You didn't gather. And the Lord didn't say, well, you have to get back to Jerusalem and then I'm going to let you, let you help me, right? The Lord used him exactly where he was. And that's exactly how the atonement works. The Lord loves to take broken people and changed people, people who are willing to be changed and to start utilizing them immediately exactly where they're at. Even if they have wandered from the straight and narrow a long ways, the second they're ready to turn back and face the Lord, he is ready to use them in that moment, wherever they're at. Now let's look at the flip side of the coin. Let's say that Nehemiah had felt prompted to stay in his position as cupbearer, right? Heavenly Father does intend to give reasons ahead of time. Sometimes hindsight is twenty twenty. Sometimes we don't even get it in hindsight. <laughs> so I don't think Nehemiah knew just how important his position as cupbearer would be. So let's say that his reasons were honorable. He had felt he had been led along somehow by the Lord to stay exactly where he was. And there are also implications and principles we can pull from this story if that had been the case. So principles such as, I wonder if he had felt frustrated, if he had watched his brother pack his bags and head out with Ezra and the other Jews. And I wonder if it had been painful to him to watch them do that. I wonder if he was frustrated with the Lord, like you want us to gather as a people, but you're telling me that I can't gather and you're, you're telling me that I don't get to go 
did I sin or something and I don't get to go anymore? Why won't you let me fulfill my righteous desires and go with them to Jerusalem and help? I know I can help if I go. I wonder if he felt frustrated by that. I wonder if he second guessed himself. Like, am I really getting a prompting not to go? Right? Because we know that we're all supposed to gather, right? That's a that's a that was a big part of the church in the Old Testament. They were supposed to be gathered together, right? If you were scattered, it was because you've been sinning. <laughs> I wonder if he second guessed himself, like Am I just making this up in my head? Am I crazy or am I actually receiving a prompting and guidance that I need to stay exactly where I'm at? I wonder if all was said and done and the wall was built and he had helped bring all of this along. I wonder if he was able to look back at his life and realize that he had been placed exactly where he needed to be. I wonder if he was able to turn back and look at how beautifully the Lord had placed him. And I wonder how it affected him to learn just how wise the Lord had been placing Nehemiah where he had been. That was all hypothesis, right? We're wondering how Nehemiah had had ended up staying in Babylon rather than going down to Jerusalem. And I think it's really important that you know that I'm not trying to teach that as doctrine either direction. But I do think it's important to examine the emotions of these people, the reasoning, why they might have chosen something over another, so that we can better learn from them and better relate to them, as long as we're not teaching it as doctrine. <laughs> now, so we had that whole first section, second section, and this is the one that really blew my mind that I was super, super excited about. So I want to tell the story of Nehemiah one more time, but I'm going to tell it in a super simplified version. And... While I'm telling it, I want you to think about whether it reminds you of a different story that you have been told before. So there is a Jew, and this Jew is very close to a Gentile king, within the inner circle of this Gentile king, Mr. Trustworthy Jew. Then there are the Jews as a people. The Jews find themselves in a whole lot of trouble. Well, Mr. Trustworthy Jew over here mourns and fasts and prays for his people and approaches the king. The king's heart is softened and the Jews are saved. Now, if you didn't catch it, (laughs) it parallels Esther's story. And there's a lot of really cool parallels (laughs) between Esther and Nehemiah. They both were placed for such a time as this, to protect their people. Now, not only are there parallels, but there's also actually history, really cool history with Esther and Nehemiah. So when you're reading the Old Testament, just another fun little con- like confusing thing about the Old Testament is it's not in chronological order. So when you're reading it, Esther comes after Nehemiah. <laughs> but in real life, Esther comes before Nehemiah. <laughs> just, you know... I don't know why they put it like that. Esther occurred approximately 30 years, 30-ish years, give or take, before Nehemiah. Now, this next part that I want to share is really, really, really cool, but it's also very confusing because Persians liked for their kings to all have super similar names, or at least that's what it seemed like when I was reading the history. And they all have multiple names, and (laughs) 
they're all very hard to pronounce names. So I'm going to do my best to make this as clear as possible. So we have Nehemiah, and he is close to the king. And this king that Nehemiah is close to is named Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes, that's his name. Okay, well, I'm going to call him King Artie just so we can separate it out and we can make sure we have everybody's character straight. We've got Nehemiah. He's close to King Artie. King Artie was the son of a king named Xerxes. Well, if you've never heard that name before, Xerxes was the husband of Esther. <laughs> we don't know that Artaxerxes was the son of Esther. He was the son of Xerxes. Xerxes, so many, sorry. Artie was the son of Xerxes. We don't know that he was the son of Esther. We're not sure. There's really no way to tell. But we do know he was the son of Xerxes. Now, let's look again once more at the context of King Artie, right? So he grew up in a household where there was a brave Jewish woman who saved her people, who did something tremendous, a very heroic act, and saved her people. And I can only assume that Artie knew about Esther. I mean, Esther's uncle saved his dad's life, so I would assume that Artie knew about Esther. I would assume that he had heard about this almost genocide of these Jewish people and this queen who had saved them. I'm going to guess that Artie knew about it. <laughs> I also want to once again point out the fact that it was completely weird <laughs> that King Artie let Nehemiah go. Just like, yeah, sure, you can go to Jerusalem. See you later. Oh, by the way, here's a bunch of political letters to take you through all the land and to get you past all of your enemies to get to Jerusalem. And then here's a bunch of resources to also go and build this wall. It didn't make political sense at all. It made no sense. Why would he do that? The Jews, I mean, the Jews had been exiled by his predecessors. Why was he letting them gather again and then helping them together and then helping them build up their city that was in ruins when they were already assimilated in with Persians. doesn't make any sense. Except when you look at it from the perspective that he grew up with Esther's influence. I can't say for sure. We don't know for sure that he <laughs> knew of Esther. It just kind of makes sense in my mind that he would know of Esther and that her influence was still affecting the people during Nehemiah's time, affecting the king, not just Xerxes, her husband, but affecting his son, Artie. And the implication of this is so powerful. We all know and love the story of Esther and how she heroically stood before the king in the face of almost certain death to save her people and that she had everybody pray and fast. And she stood before the king and said, please don't let them do this to my people and basically uncovered this whole terrible plot. We know and love that story. And she saved her people because of it. But when we look at this other idea, this potential that she had to influence Artie, to have an influence in her home, the result was same. She had this brave, crazy, heroic deed that we all applaud. And then she had this simple influence within her own household, but the effect was the same. She saved her people with this brave deed. And through Artie, through her influence on Artie, she saved her people again. 
we don't have to do these crazy heroic deeds or to face almost certain death to have an effect. We don't have to stand before kings and magistrates. The most important work that we can be accomplishing is the influence that we bring into our own homes. Hands down, Esther saved her people with this brave heroic deed. But if my conjecture is right, she saved her people through her simple influence at home, through a softened heart of a king who had the resources to build the wall in Jerusalem and to save the Jewish people. The most important work that we can do is within our own homes. I am grateful for my Savior, Jesus Christ. I am grateful that he is so wise. (laughs) He knows exactly where he wants his people and he places them. He knows when we're not going to choose the right. And the second that we turn around, he is willing to utilize us. He even places us (laughs) and has us in the exact place that we're supposed to be. Even when we're not totally together, even when we are making mistakes. I am grateful that he taught us the doctrine that through small and simple things, great things come to pass. That by small influences within your home or small influences with your neighbors, small influences with the people that you work with, those are the real deeds. Those are the most common deeds that are able to save the world and to save the people and to bring about the salvation of Jesus Christ for people. That's that's what performs the miracle are those small things. And the world would teach us something different that you have to be in front of a megaphone. You have to be in front of a huge crowd of people to have any influence or you have to be some higher up in a company or whatever it is. All these things are so important. But the Lord teaches the truth and the truth is that the most influence you can have is in these small day-to-day interactions that you have with people that you love and that you can influence the most. I am grateful that the Savior was willing to teach us that and to open our eyes and help us understand that the world doesn't know what they're talking about. I'm grateful for my Savior, and I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.